Okay, thank you everybody for attending today. Um, and today we're going to talk a little bit about how mental health professionals diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. I know that some people that we are talking to today have experienced some traumatic uh, situations and have some history of trauma in their past. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that before we get into the presentation. They say that a doctor who diagnoses himself has a fool for a patient. And I just want to say that some people may experience some of the things we're talking about today, but I think I would ask people to have caution about deciding that you have post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or that you are somehow um, uh, uh, disabled from this. The other thing is that um, it, it's important to make the difference between traumatic stress and depression and an actual mental illness. Somebody that's experiencing depression or traumatic stress as a result of some bad uh, situation that they've been in, uh, especially uh, in terms of war or torture or something like that, is having a natural response to an unnatural situation. So this is not the same as a formal mental illness. So we would rather provide you with more information than, than less. But I would please ask you, uh, if you feel some of the symptoms that we're talking about today, to remember that healing is possible and to avoid over-diagnosing yourself or thinking too badly about the future. Uh, it's easy to do if you're feeling some of these things. So please take what we say today with a little bit of caution. Okay, uh, great. So today we have three objectives. The first is to learn about the diagnostic categories of PTSD, depression, and anxiety. The second is to become familiar with uh, the two instruments that are used to diagnose these things in the literature. And the third is to talk a little bit about traumatic stress and culture and how culture influences a diagnosis of traumatic stress. There are two main manuals that mental health professionals and physicians use to diagnose mental health problems. The, the first one, the one that's uh, relevant for Iran, is the uh, International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related uh, Health Problems, which is published by the World Health Organization. The second uh, is the Diagnostic Institute. Hold on, I think we're getting some feedback. I'm going to try this again. The second is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is used in North America, Canada, and also in parts of Europe. Next slide. Okay, this just shows you what the two of them look like. We can find links to these manuals for you, and we will post that on the, depression, on the, on the discussion forum. The important thing for right now is just to realize that the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression are very similar, in fact, really not really different at all between the two publications. So either in North America or in sort of Europe and with WHO, the general understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression is pretty similar. Okay, well, the other issue is that is that culture influences how mental health is experienced and how these diagnostic criteria are applied. So for example, in different cultures, the sort of symptoms that one has for depression may have different names, for example, different language. Culture may also influence how people interpret what happened to them, 
uh, in the traumatic event. You know, for example, they may re interpret it in a religious way, or they may interpret it in terms of their society, or their family, or in different ways. But it, the main point is that each culture is, is somewhat unique in terms of the way people describe the experience of sadness after a bad event, or in the way that people describe and experience uh, the, the stress and anxiety uh, that results from, from some sort of a, of, a, of, a, of a horrible event. Okay, and maybe you remember from last week when we talked about an ecological model, about how the individual is affected and how the effect on the individual affects the family and how the family reacts to the individual and how each different layer from the family to the community to the society in a whole plays a part. Now, for example, in the Iranian context, there can be a lot of shame associated with either being depressed or being anxious or having some other problem related to something that bad that happened in the past. So remember from last week, if somebody's depressed and they're not working well or they're not, they're not able to do their job duties or they're not uh, performing the way they want to with their family, their family may then in some ways blame them and they may, be, may become embarrassed of themselves. So, and this may be, you know, this varies again by culture, but this may be sort of a feedback loop that happens, sort of something that self-reinforces shame. And so in some ways, the effect can be what's called stigma. So people may be ashamed of going for help, and then the society, the way the society reacts to them may reinforce that stigma. So a man who's supposed to be strong may say, I'm not going to go to the doctor, or a person who's, who was providing better for their family may become very ashamed of himself that he can't now, and then that may make him more depressed. So this is the issue called stigma uh, that, that is always a barrier to people seeking help in mental health. Okay, so now we're actually going to talk about diagnosis and diagnostic criteria. But remember what I said, don't be diagnosing yourself. Uh, and, and also, we're going to go through the symptoms that some people feel that every person is different. And the way everybody experiences trauma or depression can be a little bit different. So. Two lessons, don't diagnose yourself, and second, every individual experiences things in a different way. Next slide. Okay, for PTSD to be diagnosed, there has to be some sort of a traumatic event, and the traumatic event has two main characteristics. First, it's severe. It's severe enough to make a person fear for his or her own life, or the person, uh, sees something happening to somebody else that's a risk to their life. It has to be very severe. And the second thing is the person has to suffer uh, from horror or from fear or helplessness. It has to be something that overwhelms the person's senses. So, for example, during the bomb earthquake, the world actually literally turned upside down for people. So that was something that really caused horror because suddenly the buildings were falling around people. That's the sort of overwhelming thing where a person feels hopeless and they're scared and they don't feel that they can do anything about the situation when it's occurring. And this sort of fear can overwhelm the brain. The first overall group of symptoms associated with traumatic, uh, uh, with traumatic stress is for the person to re-experience what happened to them. In other words, they will relive what happened to them. Yeah, this is, uh, there's some symptoms for PTSD. One of the criteria for diagnosing uh, uh, PTSD is re-experiencing. The person will feel as if they're reliving what happened to them before. 
A way to think of this is that the event is sort of burned into memory. The neural circuits in the brain remember what happened in not just as the same sort of memory that maybe you remember what you ate for lunch yesterday, but as almost like a physical memory. They remember the sensations. So there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. And in post-traumatic stress or re-experiencing, the person may feel as if they're reliving what happened to them, which stimulates the amygdala, which releases, causes the body to release stress hormones, which again causes one of these feedback loops that makes the stress worse. So the, the one thing that you can think about with respect to this is that the, me- the way that the memory works Maybe you've had the experience where you're walking down the street and you smell somebody maybe with your grandmother's perfume and you have a very intense memory of something from your childhood. Has anybody had an experience like that? Probably you've all had some experience like that. But now imagine that in the same way a, a, a memory, some little trigger, some little thing that happens reminds you of something very bad that happened to you and can bring those memories coming back with the same intensity, almost like smelling your grandmother's perfume or or some other reminder of childhood. Now, that can cause a person to re-experience a bad event in the past. We'll talk a little bit more about flashbacks, but people can have very intense memories sometimes of what happened to them. So you can imagine that if you have these physical feelings, these strong physical fear, the sense of nervousness when something reminds you of something bad that happened, then you will avoid anything that, has, that makes that happen to you. This is the second, one of the second uh, diagnostic criteria for PTSD is avoidance. So, for example, a woman from El Salvador who was abused by the police, she has a very strong, she, she avoids anything having to do with the police, and if she smells alcohol, she has to leave the room right away. She doesn't like the smell of alcohol because the police were drunk when they abused her. So this would be an example of avoidance. But in a more extreme form, somebody who's feeling the sense of avoidance may even avoid going into the market, for example. Maybe they were arrested in the market. Maybe they were in the market when the earthquake hit. So they may not feel secure leaving their house, for example. Okay, um, so sometimes avoidance can look an awful lot like, like somebody who's depressed. They, a person may feel detached or disconnected from other people uh, or may be less interested in participating with others. This can be an avoidance of something that will remind them of the traumatic event. It can also be depression. We'll talk about depression a little bit later. The next cluster of of symptoms has to do with something called hyperarousal, which means the person is always on edge uh, and always sort of uh, aroused and and, uh, ready to react to some sort of an event in the environment. So... um, Maybe you've heard of this expression, fight or flight. If you corner an animal in the corner and you're going to try to hurt the animal, the animal either will fight or try to escape. And so there's the, the way that the brain works in a traumatic situation is that the stress hormones build up, the adrenaline, and a person either wants to fight or flee. A good example of this sort of symptom is somebody who was in the Iran-Iraq war. If there's a loud noise, if somebody slams a car door, Their body may tell them it's an explosion, and they may jump, or they may be suddenly very excited, or they may suddenly uh, uh, have their heart will beat really, really fast, for example. This is an example of hyperarousal. Or, for example, they may be what they call hypervigilant, which means they may think that 
maybe somebody could hurt them at almost any time. So maybe they're just in, uh, the, in, in a coffee shop or a tea shop having some tea, and they see a shadow on the wall. And suddenly they feel like, okay, maybe somebody's coming for me, because maybe during the war they were part of an attack, and maybe the attack started when they saw some shadows, for example. So just to uh, recover what we've gone through, there's three main symptoms, clusters of symptoms, that both the, the WHO and the North American way of looking at trauma agree. And those three are re-experiencing the trauma, avoiding the trauma in some way, symptoms of avoidance, and symptoms of hyperarousal, meaning being very excitable uh, from, from the result of the trauma. There's a couple of other criteria. The symptoms, the, the symptoms have to last for more than one month, and they have to cause uh, some difficulty in the way the person functions from day to day. In other words, many times people who experienced a traumatic event may have some of these symptoms, but they may not become a disability. They may just be something in the background that doesn't prevent them from leading a uh, the life that they want to lead. And there's one other sort of division that when they diagnose PTSD, they make. They make a difference between acute, which means something happening up to three months after the event. Almost everybody after an event like the bomb earthquake will experience some of these symptoms for up to three months. Almost everybody. Um, the second is if it lasts for more than three months and it becomes a chronic problem for the person. And the third is if it doesn't start initially at all, but it gradually comes into being over time. So, you know, PTSD can happen either immediately or, uh, or it can last a longer period of time or it can have a delayed onset. Is everybody kind of understanding this? And I hope that everybody who maybe experienced something bad in the past is not feeling too uncomfortable right now. Is everybody okay? Um, a lot of people talk about, you know, the history of psychiatry and psychology has been, um, you know, every, every civilization has had its own way to discuss mental health problems. But I, uh, and it's important sometimes for people in the West, in Europe or the United States, to have some question about whether the way that they're interpreting this is even real or if it's just completely a made-up thing. So there's been a lot of studies. A lot of psychologists and a lot of scientists have looked at PTSD, and they've looked across cultures to see whether there is some universal um, experience that humans have. And, of course, you know, there is. There, um, the, the, the sense of avoiding a stimulus that reminds one of trauma is pretty much universal across all cultures. And the same is also true for re-experiencing um, uh, and also for hyperarousal. These, these things seem to occur in, in every culture where somebody is injured or experiences a horrible event. Yes, that's very true. It was diagnosed in the aftermath of World War I. Because, uh, and and it, it gets back to this question of stigma, which is really important, because a lot of the soldiers who were fighting in World War I experienced overwhelming PTSD and could not function. They really could not function. It was not a question of them being cowards or them being weak. They simply could not function. And so a lot of people started to understand that this wasn't just somebody that wanted to run away from the war. This is somebody who simply could not fight. And so psychologists started to look into it because a lot of people were actually executed for not being able to fight in World War I, which was a real tragedy. So this gets back to the issue of stigma, why people should not feel badly about themselves or feel badly about others for experiencing these symptoms. I hope that answered your question. And if others have questions, don't hesitate to write them into the chat, and we'll try to discuss them as we go on.
Um, I wanted to talk now a little bit about some of the, um, the, the cultural variables. So, for example, we were talking about cultural variables. One of the things is that people may have different physical symptoms. So, for example, in Rwanda, maybe people say, my heart hurts, and maybe they have pain in their chest. Whereas another society, they may have pain in their stomach, uh, uh, which, is, which is psychological in nature but related to the trauma. These sorts of symptoms often vary between, between different uh, cultures. Okay, um, another thing about traumatic stress that a lot of times people think about the effect on the individual, but we also want to remember the effect on the society more widely because uh, it, it can affect um, uh, the individual, it can affect the individual's family or the wider community as we discussed last week. And there can be two examples for this. For one thing, a, a, a community may take a long time to recover uh, for example, after the BAM earthquake, I think people are better now in BAM, but I think there's probably still a lot of people that are having nightmares, and this may have an impact on the wider society in BAM. But it also might have an effect on health. So people may be more likely to have chronic diseases, on a, on, not on necessarily on an individual level, but on a community level. The rate of heart disease or diabetes or other chronic diseases may go up because people may be less able to take care of themselves uh, health-wise. A very good example of this is the Iran-Iraq War. Um, as I'm sure most people in the rest of the world don't realize how much Iran suffered during this war. And they may not realize that still, even now, people who are in their 40s or 50s or even in their 30s who were just children during this war may experience, especially in the areas where the fighting was the worst, may still experience um, uh, pain from this war and may still experience a sort of insecurity and, uh, and there may be health consequences remaining from this war. Okay, so a good example of this is that the still the ongoing symptoms of PTSD and traumatic stress are higher among Iranians that were exposed to chemical weapons or were exposed to the were in the middle of, of the fight along the border than those that might have been uh, exposed to uh, fighting without chemical weapons or were not involved in, 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 in the middle of the war. But civilians, even civilians in areas where chemical weapons were used, may have a higher incidence of traumatic stress than many soldiers who might have fought in the war but might not have been involved in something really, really horrific on the front lines. We have a, uh, a study from Hashimian Koshnod Desai uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which we will, um, we will provide to Tavana so they can put it online. But there was a study done of the Iran-Iraq War, of the aftermath, in the communities that were most directly affected, 31%, in other words, about a third of the people had PTSD at some point, and 8% still had PTSD 20 years after the Iran-Iraq War. 25% had anxiety, and 12% were depressed. The 12% depression is about normal for most populations, but the PTSD and the anxiety was much higher even, even 20 years after the war. Okay, next slide, please. Or no, I'm sorry, leave it at this. Uh, yes, no, this is the right slide. I'm sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, there, good. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, depression. Um, depression is another common consequence of a severe trauma or a human rights violation or a natural disaster. Sure. Uh, depression is another consequence of a human rights violation or some sort of severe trauma or a natural disaster. People may suffer from depression which is a little different from PTSD. So now we'll talk about diagnosing depression. So very broadly, 
Depression is an overwhelming feeling of sadness that persists for a long time that may be out of proportion to the actual situation the person is facing in their life. They may become very sad and not have an easy time functioning. Um, uh, and this can, over time, uh, if it persists, it can become a bit of a disability. So there's sort of three general areas. A person can feel hopeless or a, a person can withdraw from social contact. It can seem like there's a wall around them, like somehow they used to have a lot of friends and now they don't. They feel like, you know, their, their social network is much smaller. Or, and or they can also have some physical pain or physical complaint that maybe is not really related to anything actually physically going on in their body. Depression is, is pretty common. Uh, you know, it's estimated to be one of the most uh, important causes of lack of economic activity in the world, and it's not always related to traumatic stress or to some bad event. I mean, it just occurs commonly in people. It's, it can be a serious problem. And fortunately, from what little I know of the Iranian mental health system, I think a lot of doctors do recognize depression as a medical illness, as a medical problem, and not as some sort of a personal weakness. So we'll, uh, the next slide, please. We'll go through rather quickly just the criteria for diagnosing depression. Again, I want to say the same thing. Nobody should be self-diagnosing. Some of you may be feeling some of this. Exercise a little caution as we go through these different symptoms. Okay, we're going to go through about eight different symptoms. But the main way to diagnose for a, for a physician, if a physician is diagnosing, is that uh, five or more of the symptoms, and they've been present for at least two weeks, and one of the symptoms is either a depressed mood or a loss of interest or pleasure. Each of these are pretty easy to understand, so we won't talk too much about them. But depression includes some sort of sadness most of the day. Uh, either that the person is reporting or somebody else reports for them, uh, a, a loss of interest or pleasure in some of the things that they used to find pleasurable, and um, either gaining or losing appetite. Sometimes people will stop eating, and sometimes people will eat too much. But uh, oftentimes there will be some sort of a change in their, in their eating habits. Next slide. Okay. Um, people may sleep too much or too little. It may disturb their sleep in some way. The next one um, is that a person who's depressed, when they're just sitting around, they may move less than a normal person. If you're sitting there, you're probably, I don't know, maybe you scratch or maybe you're fiddling with something or maybe you're moving your hands or something of this sort. Sometimes a depressed person won't move very much. And also depression can carry with it some ideas or some thoughts that are maybe not really accurate or not, not really true. A person may feel very badly about themselves, and they may feel worthless, or they may feel guilty about something, um, which, which uh, may not reflect reality. A person may also think about death or think about the end of life or something of this sort more than is healthy. So what's really important is that if a person is feeling depression or feeling some of these things, feeling that they're worthless, this is a really good time to go to a doctor. Now, we cannot make a referral to a doctor in Tehran as part of this program, but if anybody's feeling that, 
it's important to go to a doctor because there's no shame in depression. There's no shame at all in going to the doctor. Again, this is important because a person who feels worthless or is thinking about death all the time, when they're out of their depression, when they're treated for the depression or when, the, when their depression ends, they may look back at that time and say, that was, not, that was not accurate. The way I was feeling at that time was not accurate. This is why, again, if you know somebody who is a victim of some sort of traumatic event and they're feeling depressed, they really should go to the doctor. Okay. Um, as is the case for PTSD, the basics of depression are uniform. It's, it's a human condition. It doesn't matter so much what country one is in and what culture one is in, although the exact, exact way it happens may vary by culture. But the basic symptoms are uniform throughout people everywhere. The World Health Organization did a study uh, of different countries and depression in different countries. And in Tehran, they found uh, the following common depression symptoms. So the symptoms that people in Tehran listed for depression are the following. Sadness, loss of pleasure, anxiety, tension, also lack of energy, loss of interest in things that they used to like to do, loss of ability to concentrate, and a feeling of worthlessness. So these were the responses of people with depression who had not read these diagnostic manuals. But they fit pretty closely with the, diet, with the different bullet points that we just got done talking about a minute ago. Okay. Um, women may be more likely generally to suffer depression. Now, whether this is because of something about being female in general or because women may be um, in not such a good economic situation or social situation in different cultures, I, I don't really know. I suspect it may be related to women's role in society and place in society. But nevertheless, women tend to be diagnosed more frequently with depression. Okay. And in Iran, there was also a very high level of people who were feeling depressed would express that they were depressed by referring to some physical ailment that they had. So they would say that they had, for example, a, a sore heart, or they would say that they, uh, they would experience uh, digestive problems, for example, that the depression was also related in phys to physical symptoms that they felt that they were somehow related to the depression. Well, I think the specific issue of torture, it may be harder for people who have experienced that to trust other people, because one of the reasons for torture is to create, um, to isolate people from others uh, and to intimidate. So that result can cause more fear of other people and, uh, and, and more isolation. But torture does cause PTSD the same as war does. Uh, I don't want to talk politics in this forum. I want to keep focused on the traumatic stress. I just want to say that, that, that torture can cause a person to have more difficulty in trusting others in particular. Well, first off, you're right. There's more incidents of PTSD. It's not just more symptoms, but more incidents. And the second part of your question is, I don't know the answer exactly, but I think chemical weapons particularly make a person feel hopeless and helpless. You can't really do anything about a chemical weapon attack. There's no way you can protect yourself. And the horror of that, the helplessness of that that a person feels, may make the, the reaction to what happened even worse than, than another sort of an attack. Okay, well, that was a good question. Um, it, I think that, and it's interesting that the person brought up LGBT people because that's important in Iran. 
And what I wanted to say about that is that a person that suffers discrimination their entire life from within their family and in the interactions they have afterwards, they can have mental health problems as a result. Now, if the experience they had was very severe and they, it caused them to fear for their life, well, then that could cause PTSD. But simply a pattern of discrimination over their whole life can make a person depressed and can have a person suffer from very many sort of mental health consequences of being shunned or banned by society. It's hard to know which is worse, but if there was a short extreme event or even a long extreme event where the person was scared for their life, yes, that could cause PTSD. I thank everybody for their questions. I think maybe we should go on. I wanted to talk a little bit about anxiety and a little bit about addictions before we end for today. Sure, we can answer the one on women. I think that there's probably a higher incidence of depression among women in Iran because of the social constraints they're found under. You know, a woman who feels that she's being forced into a marriage or that if she's a victim of family violence and she can't escape, depression is a normal reaction for somebody in that situation. Uh, so, so, of course, it's more likely for women to be depressed in Iran who are uh, subjected to some sort of persecution or some sort of uh, discrimination. I'll also try to find a study. I recall reading a study of the rate of depression among women in Saudi Arabia as being very high, also because of, of uh, discrimination. The other thing is that if a woman is at risk from her family, like in some rural parts of Iran, a woman may be at risk of an honor crime. If she commits some, or if the family thinks that she did something wrong, she may be at physical risk. And that also a woman could experience PTSD from that kind of a situation. We're going to talk a little bit about, just a very little bit about general anxiety disorder. Now, what this is, is this may be something um, that a psychologist would say a person has that doesn't fit all of the criteria for PTSD. But again, it's important to remind people that some level of anxiety is often a normal response to an abnormal situation and maybe isn't really a disease at all. And again, it's really only a disorder if it impedes the person's ability to function in their daily life. We're just going to look at the different criteria here for a minute. Uh, and this is just to sort of remind you that many of these symptoms are similar to PTSD, but maybe not quite as intense. Okay, so these are basically the, just, uh, we can read these. You can read them off of your screen. These are the basic criteria. I, I think we won't go into this in too much depth because really what's important to take away today is PTSD and depression are really the most important consequences of human rights violations or of trauma. Next slide. And all of these different experiences and these different symptoms sometimes kind of merge together in ways that are a little bit confusing. The psychologists are always trying to set up these categories. But the reality is, if somebody has experienced something truly horrible, they may experience some symptoms of PTSD mixed with some symptoms of, dep of depression. Again, I want to emphasize that everybody's experience and reaction is unique to that individual. No, pe no two people are exactly alike. I wanted to talk a little bit about substance abuse because it's important in the Iranian context. As all of you probably know, people who suffered a lot during the Iran-Iraq War and suffer from anxiety and PTSD, many of them have developed addictions to opiates, for example. And again, culture plays a part. It's kind of interesting that in the United States and in Europe, 
a lot of times governments do not treat heroin addiction rationally, whereas in Iran, they have a very good system, or they, they're trying very hard, actually, to provide treatment for uh, people who are addicted to opium or heroin. Whereas in Iran, uh, somebody who's addicted to alcohol, it becomes a criminal problem, where, and in the West, uh, it's more likely to be treated medically. So both uh, in different countries, there's a different culture interacts with substance abuse in different ways. We all know what some of the consequences can be from addictions. We don't have time right here to go into how to treat addictions, but we can probably try to find some resources uh, that we can put online somehow for this. Um, but I, I guess the, 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 main, the main issue is that addictions oftentimes are associated with PTSD, and people take drugs sometimes to reduce the symptoms of stress that they have. And for example, because opium or heroin tends to make somebody relaxed and euphoric, it's a very um, tempting drug for somebody who's feeling anxiety or a lot of fear. Opium tends to counteract fear. So it's, it's a particularly bad combination in Iran because there's a lot of PTSD and there's easy availability of opium. The two things in combination can cause a lot of people to become addicted to opiates. We're going to talk very, very briefly, uh, because this is a scary word, this word psychosis. And I just want to say a few things, first about flashbacks and about um, another t uh, symptom called dissociation, which in somebody with very bad PTSD looks like they're psychotic. Two things can look like psychosis, can look like somebody is really, truly not uh, uh, in control at all. What, they can mimic schizophrenia, and even though they're not. One is a flashback, and the other is something called dissociation, when a person sort of just checks out. So very quickly, and people can look at the slides afterwards. Uh, we're running a little bit late, but very quickly, a flashback can be almost like a nightmare that a person is, is living in real time. It can be like uh, a hallucination. It's not schizophrenic. Uh, it's not schizophrenia, and it happens only in a small number of people with very bad PTSD. But they can actually feel like they are in the moment again and reliving it, even to the point of hallucinating. This will be the final slide. Um, the other thing that can mimic a serious mental illness is the person with PTSD can shut down and not communicate with anybody or just not be able to be conscious of what's going around them in a very severe case. I only mention these. I mention flashbacks and dissociation mostly for mental health professionals because sometimes you can confuse a serious mental illness with severe PTSD. But both of these symptoms are a little bit rare. So this uh, module today, this lesson today, has not been that much fun. We've talked about a really unpleasant, a lot of really unpleasant things that happen to people. So I just wanted to stop by saying a few closing words, uh, and then we'll go on to the next module on when I, I'm glad to, um, I'm glad to take more questions. I don't know if people need to sign out though now. Um, uh, so if, if we want to do more questions, I can stick around to take more questions. Okay, that's great. Um, in terms of my closing comment, I just wanted to say that if somebody, particularly somebody listening to this, is experiencing some depression or PTSD from something that happened to them, to remember a couple of things. First, PTSD and, uh, is, is not really, PTSD and depression due to a human rights violation is not really a mental illness. It's a natural response to something that's unnatural that happened to you.
The second thing is that both PTSD and depression are treatable. So people, even though after the experience of torture or some other horrible event, one's life has changed, one can recover a life of meaning and a life of importance and a life uh, of that, that, that one wants to live after these events. So there is treatment. It is possible to treat both PTSD and torture uh, or, and, uh, uh, and depression. And in the following modules this week and then the following week, we'll talk a little bit about some of the ways that mental health uh, professionals work with people that are experiencing traumatic stress or depression. And I can stick around for some questions. Okay, well, it's a, it's a really good question. Hold on. I think somebody's got their uh, microphone on or the talk on. Okay. Um, it, it's a really good question about whether there's research on this. And I do not know. Uh, we have a volunteer uh, who is doing a lot of research of the literature in Farsi to see if there's something on this. There's a lot that's written on substance use and addictions in Farsi, and there's a lot that's written in Iran on this issue. Whether specifically anything on PTSD and, uh, and substance uh, use, I don't know. I will find out. Also, I will also be searching for literature on Afghanistan because Afghanistan has a similar problem. I'm not really sure. Uh, could the person use the, can the person describe the concept a little more, what they mean? It may mean uh, like a, a long history of, uh, of, of, of a country or a situation where there's been oppression for a very long period of time, but I'm curious what the person means by that. Okay, well, let me check into this, but I think what we're probably talking about is that sometimes trauma can persist for generations. So, for example, in Europe in the 1940s, um, a lot of people were, were killed. Uh, Jewish people and other people as well were killed by the Nazis. And those that survived suffered a lot of trauma, and their children also suffered trauma because the children had to grow up too quickly to take care of parents that in some ways were disabled. The same was the case with the Cambodians after the Cambodian War. And I think what we may be talking about here is that the effects of trauma sometimes last for more than one generation, particularly if the children grow up in a situation of insecurity or a situation where they're having to care for their parents. Okay, so, um, you know, an example might be when I was young, a friend of mine, his mother had been caught by the Japanese during World War II and used for sex, and she could not function very well at all. So even though he was a teenager, he was often taking care of her. And, and this was a situation where he grew up in a world that was not secure. He did not know if something bad was going to happen to him. He knew that something bad had happened to his mother, and he was caring for his mother, but also very insecure about the future. So this could have affected him psychologically, uh, and in fact it did to some extent. This would be an example of, of historical trauma. I also heard the word secondary trauma, and this is something we're going to talk about more during this training. We're not going to talk about it today, but we will talk about it. But this is what happens to people that they can feel depressed or sad or even somewhat anxious by hearing the horrible things that happen to other people. People have a very bad capacity to do cruel acts to each other, and the person that listens to these stories can be affected deeply by these acts and can become depressed. This is, this is a secondary trauma, which we're going to talk about a lot more during this training, but just not today. Well, depression can last a, a long, long time for certain people. So I think the main thing to do in a situation like this is not to try to push her, but try to convince her. 
to find a physician or somebody that can help treat the depression uh, that will not make her feel ashamed of herself and then to try to convince her to get medical help. But it is possible for depression to last 23 years. That's possible. The other thing, if this person is a relative, sometimes it's better to get somebody who, if, if, if you're their relative, it might be get possible to get a friend or somebody else to talk to them also about it. Sometimes that's, that makes it a little bit easier. The other thing is um, to reinforce with her that the doctors are required to keep confidentiality. They cannot talk about her with other people if she goes to see the doctor. Uh, and, then, and then finally, uh, to explain to her, if possible, that there's no shame in seeing the doctor. Depression is among people, you know, if, if depression is a result of some horrible event, it may just be a natural response. But if there's not a horrible event in the background, it may simply be a disease and the person should not be ashamed at all to go to the doctor. I wish that I had some easier answers. Um, obviously, separation of a child from the parent is, is a very, very difficult situation. The, the, only, the only thing that can make this somewhat easier is that Iranian culture tends to have very close families so that other adults in the child's life, like uncles or aunts or, um, uh, or other adults, can oftentimes... Um, help the child adjust through this. Um, if a child is in a loving environment with an uncle or an aunt, they can be very resilient. So there can be a long-term effect for some children. For others, maybe not so much. Um, there's no simple answer to that question. I wish that there was. The simple answer would be to release the parents, but that's, that's, that's something that we can't really do. Um, so We have designed this training mostly with adults in mind. But I will look for some resources on children, and I'll try to include something on children uh, as we go forward with the training. I just wanted to thank everybody for their patience and for attending this course. I hope they find it useful, and, uh, and I appreciate the questions, and we'll respond to the comments on the discussion board.